Hey everyone, welcome back to another exciting edition of the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and of course I'm joined today by Digital Book World's own Mr. Jeremy Greenfield. Jeremy, how is New York? Snowy. Mm. It's. I won't uh, regale you with tales on blue skies and uh, sunny weather here, so uh, I'll just Please keep... Please don't. I'll keep that on the down low. Um, you have might have heard that Amazon might be increasing the cost of Prime. I have heard that. They said anywhere between 20 and $40. And this could prospectively put Prime over the $100 mark. What are your thoughts? I think that consumers, by and large, will accept it. Prime has been the same price for a very long time. And I think that Amazon will reap the rewards. Um, you know, unlike its, many of its other product categories like ebooks and books and media, you can't go somewhere else for Prime. You can't say, oh, well, Amazon Prime is too expensive, so I'm going to get something else Prime. Amazon Prime is a, is a unique product offering for Amazon, and so I think the company has, um, you know, the wherewithal to be able to. Uh, make this kind of move and not suffer defections of customers who want to get free shipping plus free ebooks plus free movies and music uh, from somewhere else because there really is nowhere else that offers anything like it. I heard that Newegg today is offering their own Prime esque service for forty nine dollars a month. You get free shipping, but they don't have a um, you know an ebook store. Or a video store, but they say that you know if you subscribe to their uh, service, you'll be able to get customer service. So you'll actually be able to call a phone number and get this, Jeremy. You'll be able to actually change the background of like the store when you're visiting the store, but it's only for paid members only. So backgrounds, Jeremy. Well, boy, howdy! That what what an amazing benefit. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, Newegg is obviously a, a great retailer that provides a, a really valued, valued service among its uh, shoppers, um, but I don't think that it really is a head-to-head -head competitor of Amazon's. It has a limited product selection by comparison. It doesn't do uh, digital content uh, the way Amazon does. So, um, you know, it's interesting, and I think it's smart of a company like Newegg to uh, try to emulate a very successful retailer like Amazon, um, but I don't think that it's a threat to Amazon's core business. Speaking of Amazon, we are a fan of Scribd, the ebook subscription service, and they have just recently launched an app on uh, the Amazon Kindle Fire. So if you have a Fire uh, tablet, you'll be able to actually go to the Amazon uh, Marketplace. Uh, the app store and actually download the app. It's not too often that we actually see competitors' ebook apps listed in the Amazon store. Amazon's been pretty successful at uh, repressing third party ebook stores, ebook apps, comic apps. You know, you won't find a Marvel comic app there. You won't find Comixology. You certainly won't find Kobo or Nook listed in there. But seeing Scribd in there, um, it, it's very interesting. Yeah, and, and the storyline that Scribd wanted to put forward was that Amazon was repressing its app. And we saw conflicting reports of this 
um, that it wasn't available through search in the Amazon store and that it was available through search in the Amazon store, uh, the Kindle store. Um, I'm not sure uh, which to believe and which is, is true when, but you're right, Amazon has been very successful at keeping it a sort of uh, third-party reading at free uh, zone. Um, and I think on the one hand, Scribd sees a big market that it wants to access, and on the other hand, uh, I think Scribd saw an opportunity to sort of stick it a little bit to its rivals in the public eye. I have to wonder if inclusion in the Amazon store is like a precursor to them wanting to get into the Nook app market as maybe as small as it is, but if they can get into Amazon, do you think that they can get in the Barnes & Noble Nook app store? I absolutely think they can. I don't think they're going to meet much resistance, and I don't think anybody will care no matter what happens. Um, you know, the Nook uh, market is significantly smaller. It's also not growing the way Amazon's market is. And I think, you know, the speculation we've been hearing all year, and I think it's not completely unfair, is that in the not-too-distant future, Nook uh, might be a, a relic more than a going concern. Uh, so while I think it's interesting to think about, I'm not sure uh, that it's completely relevant to the business and to most readers. So I have a question. If if Nook becomes a relic, do you think my like five-year-old or four-year-old first-generation Nook e-reader, do you think that it will increase in value and I'll be able to double my money? Well, how much do you think it's worth now? <laughs> like probably negative $10. I think it'll probably hover in that zone. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I think I think if you keep it in in absolute mint condition, maybe in 20 or 30 years uh some geek will give you give you something for it, but I'm not sure it's worth the effort. Maybe there are parts inside of it that are valuable or even the raw materials. <laughs> Let's hope so. I personally I personally would if I were somebody like you who is a little bit more technically savvy, I would, and I didn't want to use the reader anymore, and you know, I'm assuming you, you probably still use it from time to time and may, maybe use it a lot, uh, I would find a way to turn it into something else. Um, for instance, like a remote control for something, um, or a display screen somewhere uh, you know, in your car or in your kitchen, um, where you could basically just hijack the screen and the basic hardware and use it for a, a different kind of project or for an art project of some sort. Yeah, I mean it is running Android, so it is. I know it is possible to root those. So, we'll we'll see where the future takes us. So let's um let's talk about eBooks and authors for a moment. Uh, recently, there was an author survey on how many authors actually publish that was done at DBW. Well, let let's you know that's a little bit misleading, um, Michael, because it wasn't just like this author survey popped up. I mean, we worked for many, many months on the author survey. So um, yes, we did. We conducted a survey among a little over 9,000 uh, aspiring published, self-published, and what we call hybrid authors, those who have both self-published and published, about uh, what, what they want from publishers and self-publishing platforms, and why they write books, and why they publish books, and their levels of satisfaction with things. And we found you know, a lot of really, really interesting results. And I think the results that you're pointing toward uh, right now are how the actual authors sort of break down in terms of how they've published. So just taking from a chart that we have published right now in digitalbookworld.com, out of all of our authors, about 58% of those have completed a manuscript. Of the 58% who completed a manuscript, about 58% published. So a little bit more than half of a little bit more than half of all of our authors published the manuscript. 
about 40% of those traditionally published and the rest uh, self-published. Um, so clearly the percentage of authors who uh, call themselves authors and who have traditionally published uh, a manuscript is, 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 is quite low. It's, it's in the, the low double digits. Um, Self-publishing, you know, a lot more common, but there are many authors out there who um, have not published anything um, or who have submitted something to agents and editors um, and, and who have not met with success and who have not decided to try uh, self-publishing uh, too. And, and the reason we wanted to show this is because we've been getting a lot of chatter around about the survey and how it breaks down and what kinds of authors are there. And we wanted to show that, you know, all kinds of authors were answering questions for us. So are you surprised at all by any of the results? The survey in general? Uh, tons of surprises. Um, I, I don't want to give away too much because we have a report available at the Digital Book World store right now that we're selling for about $300. Um, and it's a very extensive report on the survey results. But the one of the big surprises was levels of satisfaction. We asked authors who had traditionally published, who had self-published, um, and then hybrid authors who had traditionally published and self-published about how satisfied they were with their various publishing experiences, with the marketing and how many books they sold and the kind of money they made and, and uh, the support they got and the expertise of the folks they got to work with. And we, we tailored the questions based on whether it was a publishing or a self-publishing experience. And what we found is that authors in general are just not satisfied. Um, they're kind of like cable company subscribers. Uh, they just they, they hate the services. They hate all the options, and they complain about all the options. Um, and uh, you know, I think the message there for both self-publishing services providers and publishers is there's a lot of room for improvement. I would take this almost as a positive message that they're, that authors are up for grabs in terms of satisfying them with what you can do for them, either as a publisher or a self-publishing service. So. Jeremy, you uh, you read a lot, and um, you know from time to time you've been known to read an ebook. And when you read an ebook, do you find yourself ever downloading samples? I do on occasion download samples, but only if I'm really hard up for what to read next. So in a special situation, like if I am in the airport and I've just finished a book and I really don't know what to read next and it's sort of at the end of the book it suggests that I download a quick sample of something that I might like. Yeah, I'll download a sample. But other than that, I'm, I'm not a sampler. I just sort of buy and go into it. And I guess as a result I've wasted a little bit of money here and there, but I don't mind. So one very interesting aspect of samples is we, we've kind of been running into situations where samples are not really even giving away the first chapter. You know, your average book, uh, your ebook, usually has a, a table of contents. They have the, the publisher info there. They usually have like a foreword written by a different author. Uh, sometimes, even before the first chapter starts, the author will like set up the premise of the book, maybe talking about their writing experiences and things like that. And by the time all of those different pages are there, you only really have less than half of the first chapter to make a decision on, is this book viable or not from you? Uh, I've picked up some textbooks or some you know, uh, business books in the past, and I only get, for the sample, 
the first page of chapter one after, you know, the foreword and like, you know, the table of contents is like 20 pages. And I, I kind of see a problem right now with samples in the way that the algorithms are done where you don't really get a lot of the book to be able to, you know, read even like the first page of the first chapter or even get through the first chapter. Whereas when you're, when you're in a bookstore, you pick up a physical book, there's really nobody over your shoulder saying, okay, you have five minutes, you know, with this. You could just sit there on a couch in a Barnes & Noble and read that book to your heart's content. Whereas with the digital edition, you know, sometimes you get the full chapter. Sometimes you maybe get a few pages of the first chapter. There's really no consistency in the way that samples are presented. So knowing that, do you think that there's a problem at all with the way that samples are done through the various ebook stores? I think that there is a problem in this area, that the samples should be a little bit more bespoke, that publishers and authors should be allowed to determine exactly how much of a sample they want to give based on a variety of factors. So for instance, sometimes the front matter of a book, as you said, is counted as part of the quote-unquote sample. And therefore, you know, you, you, you get to the first chapter, you get to read one or two pages, and then, and then that's enough. So I think that, that the ebook retailers could be a little bit um, better about allowing choice within the samples. Um, but I don't see this as a major problem for the industry. Why do you ask? Well, it, it's, you know, um, I've been downloading samples in, in research for an article that I wrote. And, you know, I would really like to see the whole sampling revised. You know, if you're downloading a sample, does the table of contents really matter? Does, you know, the foreword actually matter? You know, you kind of just want to read a chapter or two to see if the, you know, if the writing style is compelling, if, you know, the, the narrative or, you know, the content, if it's very interesting. I would like to just see everything truncated. And if you download a, if you download a sample, it just starts at chapter one. You know, mm -hmm. all that other stuff is in the full edition of the book. It's like a movie trailer. You know, when you when you watch a movie trailer, it usually instantly starts where you get into the action right away. You don't see the, you know, from the makers of or, you know, from the producers of, you know. You don't see, like, half the trailer with just, like, Who's who's made the movie? Who's the director? Who's like the you know the movie studio? No, you kind of press play, and within like two seconds, the trailer starts. And I'd kind of like to see ebook samples follow the same suit, where you download a sample and it just starts at chapter one, and you could usually read a chapter or two, and you should just strip away, you prune, you truncate all of that superfluous information at, at the beginning of the book, because ultimately it's all irrelevant, you know? And this is just kind of what I'd like to see because it would give readers a chance to read more of the book and you would avoid those situations where if you have like 10 pages of a table of contents, you're not, you know, you're guaranteed to at least be able to read a few pages of the first chapter. Yeah, I think that's, that's smart. And I think that you know, as we've discussed many times, we're sort of in the dark ages of ebooks and ebook retailing now. It's a really sloppy marketplace. There's all these metadata problems, and there are all these companies scrambling to fix things. Totally. There are, very, there are very few companies who sort of like come to the table with a, you know, beginning to end, A to Z, beautiful, well put together 
uh, kind of product. I mean, maybe iBooks is closer than some of the others, but iBooks has a lot of other problems that you know people I think legitimately complain about uh, people who are its customers. So um, we're really in the dark ages here, and you know I imagine that someday in the world of eBooks it'll be a really nice seamless process when it comes to things like samples and you know quite frankly things like metadata and, and customer reviews. And you know as good a, a, of a business as Amazon is, and as good as the Kindle store is, you know it's really ugly to look at, and uh, it's it's it makes it hard sometimes to find some things. And I think that we're going to see as the eBook marketplace matures, those sorts of things will get better. So speaking of things getting better, there's a new service out of Germany called ReadFi. And it's basically uh, an online subscription service that uh, give the option to allow people to read eBooks for free as long as they don't mind enduring ads. So it's advertisements that pop up either at the center of the screen or along the bottom. And these ads are image, text, or video based. And uh, this, they're launching with about 15,000 ebooks to choose from, and they want to grow about to about 30,000 by the end of the year. So this is a, you know, a, primarily a German-based subscription service, but it does, you know, it, it does raise an interesting uh, question: is that if a book is given to you for free, do you mind having ads served to you? Um, yeah, and this is a question that is is being attacked in the U.S. by a couple of startups who, which I've been talking to for years now, but don't really want to go public yet for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Um, and I think it has to do with you know the three main players in the market, which is the publisher, uh, and you know the publisher is in the author, the rights holders, the agents, etc., um, the retailer and the uh, reader. So I think in the U.S. we've been very accustomed to, you know, we'll be willing to put up with advertising if we get something for it. And this comes in many forms. You know, you watch Hulu for free, um, but you have to watch ads. Um, also, you know, okay, I'll download this free download, but I have to give you my email, and of course you're going to use it to advertise to me. So uh, we're willing to put up with that in the U.S. I think the publishers you know, are such a fractured bunch that some of them are absolutely into the idea. Some of them are not. And when I say publishers, I mean not just the Penguin Random Houses of the world, but what about self-publishing authors um, who I think would, would happily take that revenue for the level of distribution uh, that they would get if somebody would help them distribute the ebook, but also advertisers. You know, advertisers are publishing ebooks now too. And I think that they, would, they are very happy to have ads uh, appear in their ebooks. I think the, the real snag is the retailers. Um, from what I hear from the startups that are working on this this problem, you know, the retailers are loath to allow uh, advertising in the books that 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 go through their systems. And this was maybe six months ago, the last time I investigated this. And I think the reason is that you know companies like Amazon really want to control as much of the the process and experience as they can, and to allow this sort of new kind of revenue stream in there without any part of control of it um, might be against the company's DNA. Also, you know, it's potentially something that they might say is negative for user experience. So there's any uh, a variety of reasons why, but I think retailers are really the bottleneck for it happening in the U.S. Well, I know Amazon actually filed for a patent. Uh, it must be about three or four years ago now that they actually successfully got a patent to display advertisements in ebooks. They just never did anything with it. And 
you know, they, they kind of did advertisements like on, uh, you know, their e-readers and their tablets where you could save $20 on a device if you don't mind ads being served to you on the home screen or during like the screensaver. So they're kind of experimented with ads like that. But so far, ReadFi has been like the only company to actually launch a service that will give you, you know, your subscription, your ebooks for free of ads are served to you. So do you think that any of the industry is going to be paying attention to the success of ReadFi to see, you know, is it a viable business model, uh, you know, in, say, a year from now? What are the advertisement payouts like? Are, are people, you know, are people getting profitable, you know, through the advertisement revenue? What's like the, the revenue share program? You know, there's a lot of questions about this. But do you think anybody in the industry is paying attention to this? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if anyone's paying attention to ReadFi in particular, but I think they are absolutely paying attention to new kinds of business models um, and you know new ways of thinking about generating revenue uh, very aggressively. Um, so, should they be made aware of ReadFi, perhaps through reading uh, your your website, uh, I think that it will be a model they will consider. But I can tell you that at the at any of the top 20 or 30 publishers in the U.S., you know they've been pitched this idea of advertising in their books. They are well aware of its existence and, um, you know, uh, have been thinking about it for some time. You know, I, fundamentally, I always thought it was a good idea. You know, you can either buy the book or you can get it for free and just put up with advertisements. Like, I visit a lot of websites, you know, we're both news hounds, so you're kind of always visiting websites to get scoops or, you know, just for our own interest, you know, uh, outside of ebooks and publishing and e-readers. You know, I, for me, I'm... Um, I, I've worked uh, before I got into like the whole e-reader scene. I was uh, working in the video game industry for a number of years, so I, I still pay attention to you know the you know to gaming sites, new things, new technologies, and things like that. So I visit a lot of sites, and I've been noticing you know if you go to a site or you click on a link, it's like you can't even look at that story unless you give them your email address or you watch like a 15 second video, you know, that you have no way to collapse or anything like that. And it's sort of the way that the websites actually make revenue. So you know, I put up with that somewhat grudgingly, but I, I wonder if advertisement ebooks can take off because one of the benefits of, of having an e-reader and you know this is that you don't always need to be in a Wi-Fi area to read the book you know you could be at the cabin you could be on vacation you could be commuting you could be on the beach and most of the times you're not connected to an internet area so if you're not connected to an internet area how are the ads actually going to be served to you if there's no internet connection um, well, the ads could be uh, through JavaScript updated um, when internet connection is, when there is an internet connection. That's another sort of um, area of hesitation for the retailers because allowing JavaScript in their eBooks um, that can dynamically serve ads would also open the door for information being passed between readers and, and publishers. And the retailers, as you know, have been very guarded about the kinds of information they're willing to share with the publishers. Um, so, you know, that would be a very big step for retailers to allow dynamic ads in books because it would mean that publishers could then gather other kinds of information about readers that, I, quite frankly, retailers don't want to allow them to gather. 
you, you know, and you're right. You know, there, there's if there's any one thing I've learned from going to a lot of publishing events over the world is that publishers don't want to share big data with the retailers and the retailers don't want to share their data with the publishers. Everyone feels like it's our data. We're not going to share it. We're going to use it to either refine our own products in house or to, you know, slowly enhance the product. So I hear what you're saying. Um, 180 for a moment. One of the biggest news stories uh, of the week has been long-term CEO of Kobo, Michael Serbinius, stepping down as CEO, and we have a Rakuten-appointed CEO, uh, Takahito Aki, who's taken his place. Yeah, no, this is not should not be a surprise for people who are observers of this company or of mergers in general um, or of Japanese business. Uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, you know, it's been a little bit over two years since uh, Rakuten uh, purchased, uh, acquired Kobo. Usually the leadership of such a company um, stays on for a year or two or three and then and then moves on. It's more the exception than the rule that somebody like Serbinus would continue on at Kobo for a long time or even move up the ranks in, in, the, in the new parent company, which is what I think somebody like him would be apt to do. So that's first of all. Uh, second of all, um, you know, Japanese companies generally uh, are run by Japanese executives. There are uh, many um, Japanese companies that are international, multinational companies that have senior level executives from, from elsewhere, but it's very rare for there to be a CEO level executive of a Japanese company. Um, and I think probably some of the thinking inside of that company was that they wanted it to be run um, by, by an inside candidate and someone who is Japanese. There are a couple of famous examples. Howard Stringer was the CEO of Sony for a while. Uh, I believe he's still chairman of the board. Um, uh, the CEO of Nissan for a while was, was a non-Japanese, but, but those were big news stories and, and those were really exceptions rather than the rule. And then the third reason I think you might have been expecting this, although this is less of a strong reason, is that um, you know, Kobo has had success expanding internationally. It has been successful in Canada. Um, but in the U.S., uh, the largest e-reading e market, you know, Kobo is really a, not a non-player. Um, and I think you know, Rakuten has ambitions that are worldwide. And when you have worldwide ambitions, the U.S. is a really important market. So I think maybe the thinking was, you know, we need somebody who can uh, make the right decisions to grow us uh, in the world's most important market. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, uh, let's talk about your last point for a moment about the U.S. Uh, the only way right now that you could actually buy a Kobo reader in the U.S. is if you go to uh, a bookstore, like an indie bookstore that's part of the American Booksellers Association that participate in their, you know, their digital reading platform. You know, you'd be hard pressed to be in any city and actually have a bookstore that actually participates in that. The bigger city you have, like you live in New York, obviously, it probably has a higher concentration of indie bookstores that belong to the ABA. But if you're in rural America, which is, you know, a sizable portion of the overall U.S. population, probably not so much. And otherwise, the only way that you could order a Kobo device in the States is if you just buy one from the website. But, you know, the average person is just used to walking into a store, going to the electronics section, playing around with a few devices and buying something. Um, and if it's not in the retail environment, which is still where 90% of all um, – 
all business has really done is in the store you know they're they're never really going to open up the US market and overall I'm not really surprised that they um they you know planted their own CEO in Kobo I mean I'm actually surprised that it took this long you know for it to happen I was expecting it within the first year that they would start you know, uh, putting in their own executives into the company and then eventually, you know, putting in their own CEO. So as it stands, Michael does not even have a seat on the board anymore. Uh, he just no, he's, he's, he's vice chairman of the board, which is, you know, you, usually the kind of position that you give to an executive that you're putting out to pasture. Well, he might be vice chairman, but when they have board meetings, he's not going to be there anymore. And I actually had talked to Kobo about this, and they made it quite clear that when there's board meetings now, like when there's like you know the the big board meetings, he's not going to be there anymore. Interesting. So um, you're you're surprised that this didn't happen sooner. Did you get the impression from talking to folks that you know Serbinus was not particularly well liked um, within the organization? You know, it, it's hard to say. I mean, it's seldom will anybody talk smack about the boss. But I, I think that, like, he was he was pivotal for the early years of Kobo. You know, um, before Kobo was Kobo, they were basically an, an, a Chapters Indigo pet project called Short Covers. And that's where uh, Michael Servinius and Michael Tamblin first met and first started the executive core and then they you know they split from um, Indigo and Indigo became uh, a shareholder in Kobo and then eventually Indigo deinvested themselves out of Kobo and I think they originally put 50 million into Kobo and then when Kobo was acquired by Rakuten Indigo on that 50 million investment made 300 million dollars so not not too shabby but you know, um, it's hard to say if he was really liked. Um, I think that he was instrumental in the growth of Kobo. But now that Kobo is an international force, I think that they need to sort of shake up management to, you know, take it to that next level. Got it. And, I, you know, I'm just interested to see if, like, they're going to be appointing. You know, it's sort of like now that there's a new CEO – Usually that the core executive team is like the next to be axed as, you know, when you when you go in there and take over a company, you're bringing in your own boys to, you know, to have your back and to make sure that there's no like power play struggles and things like that. Absolutely. So, yeah, this this may be the biggest news, but I have a feeling that the entire upper echelons of management is going to be sh shaken up pretty quickly as uh, the new guy sort of brings in his crew to sort of uh, take the company in the direction that he wants to take it. Although I'm very interested to see because this guy really has no ebook, no e-reader experience. So do you think that a CEO of one of the biggest e-reader and e-book companies in the world with no e-book, no publishing, you know, no hardware for experience, do you think that he could actually, do you think that that's even relevant? You know, do you think that he even needs to care about any of that stuff to take it to the next level? Um, I don't think it's absolutely necessary and it could be an advantage uh, you know, there have HarperCollins has had success in pointing C-level executives who don't have experience in the publishing industry and have come up with some very innovative, interesting solutions. 
Um, and I think, you know, not having been in an industry or having been through battles could give him a fresh perspective on what's possible. Um, on the other hand, there will be a learning curve. Um, now, that said, you know, you don't get to be a very senior-level executive at a very large company uh, without being pretty smart, generally. Yeah. No, I agree. And, um, you know, I kind of will draw an analogy against um – you know, uh, in the wrestling world, uh, for I know WWF, WWE, when they hire new writers and when they hire, uh, you know, producers and things like that, one of their prerequisites is, is to like your the thing that we're looking for is not a fan. You know, we don't want you to be a fan or really to like understand our product. We just really want you to be really good at your job and we'll just train you on our product. So that's kind of like what they're doing here at Kobo is that, you know, they didn't want anybody that really understood the product. They just really wanted someone who was really smart to come in. And if you're, you know, inherently smart, you can figure things out in a pretty short order. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is the biggest news story of the week, and it's going to have reverberating effects, you know, on Kobo going forward. I just wonder what Michael is going to be doing um, in the near future now that he's not really burdened by that top dog duty. Do you have a feeling, Jeremy, that he'll still be a part of Kobo for a while? Do you think he's going to go do his own thing? I couldn't even begin to guess, uh, but he's a very smart and talented guy, so I'm sure he'll land on his feet. Yeah, I'm trying to get an interview with him and uh, the new CEO, but nobody's doing interviews for like the next few weeks. Um, mm-hmm. and they're not even really even releasing statements, so I guess it's kind of battle mode right now. So I'm going to try to at least talk to both of these guys and find out, you know, uh, at least the future for Michael, you know, what what his plans are, but more or less trying to talk to the new CEO to see if, you know, the overall company goals, if, if those are going to change, where are the priorities, you know, is it business as usual or is, you know, is, is the focus on the U.S. market, is the focus on China, you know, the things like that. So I guess we'll have to just wait and see. Absolutely. All right. So uh, before we wrap it up for today, we've talked about a number of times about, you know, self-publishers, hybrid publishers and things like that. It seems as though is that there's a new imprint that has been launched and they actually have a writing contest. Uh, Simon & Schuster launches uh, 250 words website. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think I think you're you're uh, conflating a couple of different Simon and Schuster stories here. Now, Simon Simon 451 is a new um, sci-fi imprint yeah. that is having a uh, a crowdsourcing sort of a writing contest for the for a new great novel in um, in in science fiction. Um, but but the new uh, 250 words uh, is a vertical sort of marketing website for business books from Simon and Schuster, and. Um, I think that uh, it's what a lot of publishers are doing right now, trying to build these sort of niche vertical plays where they can talk directly to consumers about areas of of very specific uh, interest. Um, and Simon and Schuster says that the site will be, you know, publisher agnostic. It will talk about business books it publishes and business books that other people publish. So, you know, with with the writing contest, it seems as though that one person will win, you know, a publishing contract. Um, 
you know, it's sort of like a stage level things where they're going to select 10 finalists and, uh, you know, they're looking for manuscripts. They're looking for, they're not looking for like novellas or for like, uh, you know, the equivalent of Kindle singles. They're looking for, you know, like a full length novel. Do you think that these sort of writing contests are going to draw up good writers to the table to submit their content or what do you think you know because this, this is not the first time a major publisher has had a contest you know they they usually do these sort of things but in in your knowledge of the industry do these writing contests what type of people do they attract and ultimately are are they are the books that eventually win do they go on to be successful um, you know, yes and no, uh, but I think things are a little bit different now. You know, Sylvia Day, for instance, uh, was one of, one of the very first places she got her start was through a writing contest, and she's obviously gone into a very successful career. Um, you know, that said, I think that the world is different now, um, that there are way more places that aspiring writers can, can put their work, you know, but the, the, the uh, possibility of a Simon & Schuster book contract could be so strong that um, authors will gravitate uh, toward that. So, um, you know, I think that it really varies. Uh, it really, we'll have to see. Um, but I do think, you know, people like contests, people like to be judged, and, you know, having entering a writing contest is different than just having something on Wattpad. Um, that said, why not do both? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you know, Wattpad is usually a platform that a lot of publishers pay attention to. You know, the the people with the largest followings. Um, you know, it's, it's like when publishers are signing new people. I mean, we've talked about this before. It, the The thing that they're looking for is, do you already have a loyal following of users? What's your Twitter count? What's your clout score? You know, it, it's seldom like, you know, instead of looking at the caliber of the book, it's like how marketable is this author? And, you know, are they guaranteed sales if we publish them through their existing fan base? You know, a lot of the times agents ask those questions first and foremost, and publishers now are more concerned about those. And Wattpad, you know, you could look at an author and immediately gauge all of those metrics. So it makes Wattpad as like a contest and recruitment platform a little bit more viable and Harlequin has um, poached a lot of writers you know from Wattpad over the years sure. through sponsoring uh, contests and you know it's usually that community is very active in National Novel Writing Month and you know the people that do well in that contest often get publishing contracts too so I would almost say that instead of entering writing contests you're better off like, you know, writing for a company like Wattpad and organically growing, you know, your 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 Facebook count, your Twitter account, um, honing your craft in a sort of a crowdsourced environment. So instead of being judged on a full novel that you wasted six months doing only to find out that it's shit, you, you know, you kind of hone your craft and have people offer constructive feedback, you know, on a chapter by chapter basis. Yeah, I, I, I would also say, though, why not do both? Yeah. I mean, I agree. I mean, 
you know, you're never going to win it if you're not in it, you know? So, you know, if you're, if you're an author that's into like sci-fi and fantasy, you know, take a look at this contest. Um, I know that uh, we have articles on our site that overview it. And um, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of info out there. So you could uh, check that out if you're an aspiring author looking to get a major publishing deal. Uh, before we wrap it up, Jeremy, do you have any final plugs or anything that you'd like the listeners to know? Well, I was amazed to see that this week that Amazon Publishing had four of the top 11 um, ebooks on the Digital Book World ebook bestseller list. And uh, to me, that was really impressive. And I think uh, publishers probably sat up and, and took notice, including the number one bestselling ebook, uh, The Barkeep. Um, for, and this is the first time Amazon's had this much success on, on the ebook bestseller list. At the same time, you know, if you look at the New York Times print plus ebook bestseller list for the past couple of weeks, Amazon publishing is not on there at all. Part of that could have to do with the Times methodology. It doesn't count ebooks that are only available at one retailer. I have no idea why it does that. Um, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you just ignore those sales? I mean, perhaps there's some kind of ideological reason. I really don't know. And maybe there's a real reason that I just haven't figured out or don't understand. Um, but Amazon Publishing has had a very good week. Um, awesome. Well, um, yeah, I mean, for us, uh, we've been doing a lot of videos lately. Uh, we have a few free contests uh, for, I think our contest right now is to win 10 leather cases for the Amazon Kindle Fire HDX and the original Kindle Fire. All you have to do is like and subscribe to our YouTube channel and drop a comment on the video to uh, enter and to and to win. Uh, within about a week, we usually let the contest run and then we'll just like pick 10 winners at random. Uh, you can enter at youtube.com slash goodyreader for all of that. And um, yeah, a lot of exciting news happening. So uh, make sure you visit digitalbookworld.com and goodyreader.com for all the latest news, previews, interviews, and industry-wide coverage. And uh, for Goody Reader, my name is Michael. And, of course, I'm joined every week by Jeremy Greenfield. Uh, everybody, take care. <laughs>